This is Fine Rambles, number 68. So I just finished reading the book The Box, I think by Mark Levinson, and it's a history of the shipping container. It's almost, if this makes any sense, a, uh, a biography. <laughs> you know, I know that sounds like probably the driest, most boring book in the world. Wow, Matt, you're going to tell us the history of a box, a shipping container box, those 20-foot or 40-foot oblong steel empty boxes I see on the backs of trucks or on railroads. Yeah, well, (laughs) I'm a dork. What do you expect? It laid out this picture, essentially, of how inefficient shipping or just transportation was in the late 50s. You had Essentially, you had break bulk ships. The longshoremen would take each piece individually or each crate individually and manually, with like their muscles, load it onto the ship into the hull, hopefully in a way that it wouldn't jostle or break. And this was, I hope it's clear, insanely inefficient. Things were broken, things were lost, misplaced. There was a lot of theft, and it just took an enormous amount of time and just labor. It was not efficient. And then over the next 20 years, you know, these revolutions take time, the shipping container changed everything. It changed everything. The ports that had been success had been successful basically went out of business. New ports were created from scratch in places like Felixstowe or Port Elizabeth or, you know, China, (laughs) China and Singapore. And these ports were much larger, they were much deeper, and they could process, you know, orders of magnitude more cargo. And the ships got much bigger as well. The ships were designed specifically to transport the container. And, you know, just from 1978 through today, the size of the ships has increased over sevenfold. To the point now where a lot of the ships, they not only can't get through the Panama Canal, they can't get through the Straits of Malacca, which is, which is sort of <laughs> a shocking idea. And this really changed global manufacturing. Manufacturers started to produce in scale near ports so that they could take advantage of economies of scale and fill up entire containers. And this essentially stretched the global supply chain so that before you used to have things made relatively locally because of the high cost of transportation and manufacturing was quite integrated. So you'd have one company make a lot of different things from raw materials and then put them together. Now, if you think about a product, it's probably made, even a simple product, it's probably made in dozens of different locations all over the planet. And then those individual parts or sub-assemblies or intermediate components are brought together and then assembled and then shipped maybe, you know, 10,000 miles, say, from Shenzhen to Los Angeles and then transported internally. Intermodally, which means that they'll, the crane will take the container directly off of the ship, put it on the dock, and then it goes directly onto a railroad car or it goes onto a truck. And this lowered the cost of transportation dramatically, and it made it possible to have globalization. You know, it's a very complicated, very highly sophisticated and efficient supply chain. But it got me thinking because there was a real cost to this. And 
one of the costs is fragility, something I talk about a lot as regards to Nassim Taleb, where if you have a very complex supply chain that is literally spread over the entire planet, the downside is that if anything goes wrong, manufacturing just stops. And the example he gave was after 9-11, when the ports in the U.S. started to be more diligent about checking, you know, boxes that were coming into the country, the auto plants in Detroit shut down in three days because they didn't have any buffer inventory. They just assumed that a truck would show up at the dock at 6 a.m. with parts that had come from South Korea and Vietnam and China, and that that global supply chain, as complex as it was, would never, ever go wrong. Another issue is just environmental. I think the statistic he gave was that these ships now burn half a billion, B, billion, (laughs) half a billion tons of heavy fuel oil every year, HFO. And that is essentially diesel with more sulfur. So it's more polluting than diesel, and it's 500 million tons a year. And then you know, a little more topical maybe, the third downside is that it hollowed out manufacturing in the West. Because if transportation is essentially free, manufacturing gravitates immediately to the places that is the most cheap to make anything. So what does that mean? Well, it means you go to a place that has no labor laws. You go to a place that has no environmental laws where there is no minimum wage, where you can dump the pollution directly into the groundwater. And all of this lowers costs, but it has a very high, you know, negative externality. It definitely helps, you know, give the devil his due. It definitely helped pull the poor in India and China and Korea and Vietnam up by providing them with better jobs than would have otherwise been available. But at the cost of A, environmental, and B, you know, taking those jobs away from people in in the West. And if you look at the manufacturing that's been hollowed out of this country, I think I've talked about this, there are lots of things now where the supply chain is simply missing from the states. We can't build basic things in this country anymore without relying on this supply chain, without relying on China. It got me thinking about how this is sort of a theme in our lives right now. We used to do things in our communities, and we used to do them with people that we knew, people that we saw at the supermarket or we went to church with or whom our kids, whom, who, whom our kids went to, went to school with. And you saw these people all the time. And, uh, and one example I was thinking of was, was credit. I think it used to be that, you know, before the advent of the credit card and, you know, these huge banking institutions, that when you needed credit, you got it from someone you knew. And he gave you credit because, because you were a part of the same community, because you had ties that bound you together. These mutual ties of obligation are are useful in creating cooperation. And now we've taken what was a local, a local idea and we've mediated it through banks who are very far away. 
they're faceless, essentially. We don't know who we're dealing with, or we don't deal with the same person every time. Often it's just a phone tree, <laughs> right? The automated voice. And the bank's unaccountable, and there's no transparency. I mean, you know, you know I think famous, it's famously said that if you want to try something impossible, try getting a mistake taken off your credit score, or try, try dealing with identity theft. Another aspect of this, I think, is charity. Again, I think charity used to be quite local. It was, it was organized through the local church or some local community center. And the charity was often going to people you knew, who, again, you had ties to, who were a part of the community. Maybe they were friends of yours or friends of relatives. And now we mediate charity through essentially the government, right? We send our money by force, a third to a half of our income by force, thousands of miles away. The government, again, this organization of faceless bureaucrats that are unaccountable, unelected, right? We're not talking about senators here. We're talking about people, you know, who are burrowed deep within, deep down within the government that sort of form, you know, the deep state or sort of just just the Mandarin bureaucracy, in a sense. And then they take their enormous cut, right? Because everyone's corrupt. That's just how the world is. And then they decide how to allocate that charity to people you don't know and you'll never see. And even if it comes back to someone that it would have gone to before, the tie is cut because it's not a direct, you're not helping someone directly. There's no creation of a sense of obligation towards them or a sense of responsibility by the person who is the participant. It's an EBT card. It's sort of this faceless, I keep saying that, but it's this sort of impersonal transaction rather than something between two humans. You know, commerce Commerce is the same thing. Again, you people used to shop in their communities. They shopped at the local stores where they knew their proprietors, and if they had questions or problems, they knew who to talk to. And again, there was a sense of mutual obligation. And now, well, first it was Walmart, largely enabled by, again, China Inc., by very low transportation costs and this arbitrage of labor and environmental regulation. And now it's become Amazon. And again, you know, the theme is the same. There's no transparency. It comes from a manufacturing location 10,000 miles away, and it's sold by this trillion-dollar corporation. You don't know how they were made, the products. You don't even know if those products are, are real. Look at Amazon. I mean, they now host products by undiligence third parties. The products are fake. The reviews are fake, and they claim immunity under Section 230. So again, there's no transparency. There's no accountability, right? There's no way you are going to be able to hold Jeff Bezos to account for the things that Amazon does. Now, my last example, I think, I think is just community itself. And again, I have to go back pretty far here. This is before my time, but there used to be local dances, I think, down at like the town hall. And people came together at church, not just to worship, but to do charity events, to, to do social events. What's the current state of affairs? Well, <laughs> we now mediate our community through Facebook. And again, you know, it's, 
it's an unaccountable corporation. Look at Mark Zuckerberg. Facebook's made lots of mistakes, some of which seem to have been deliberate in order to make more money. And a lot of people are upset with Facebook, including me. (laughs) But it's impossible to hold him to account. It's impossible to make him take responsibility. And there's all sorts of reasons for this. You know, he has dual class voting shares that guarantee him control. And, you know, a larger problem is that public companies now have widely distributed shareholders. You know, in theory, they own this company, but in reality, they really have zero control. So what's my point? I think my point is is that it's very easy to see the benefits of some of these changes where we increase efficiency by mediating something through a large, very efficient organization that's a long way away, whether it's China Inc. or it's J.P. Morgan Chase or it's the federal government or it's Amazon or it's Facebook or Walmart. It's easy to see the benefit of lower costs, but it's much harder to see the cost of lower cost, if that makes any sense. It's harder to see the externalities. It's harder to see the environmental impact. It's harder to see the fragility of the global supply chain and of the banking sector and of just communities itself. I think that's the larger point. This idea that we've hollowed out our communities, we've severed the ties that bind us together with our neighbors. It's those ties to people, not to corporations or to the government, that that give us meaning and purpose and that provide us with, you know, human contact with, with friendship and, and love and a sense of belonging. Anyways, anyways, <laughs> anyways, that's all I got. I'll catch you next week.